The story was told of a Sunday school teacher whose assignment it was to explain to his class of six-year-olds what someone had to do in order to go to heaven uh, in an attempt to discover what the kids already uh, believed about that subject, he asked them a few questions. He said, um, if I sold my house and my car, had a big garage sale and gave all my money to the church, would that get me to heaven? And they all shouted together, no. Well, if I cleaned the church every day, mowed the yard, and kept everything neat and tidy, would that get me into heaven? And together they all yelled, no. Well then, if I was kind to animals and gave candy to all the children and loved my wife, would that get me into heaven? Again, they all shouted, no. Well then, how can I get into heaven? He asked, to which a boy in the back row stood up and shouted, you gotta be dead. <laughs> can we agree on that this morning? Can we all, can we all, I, I know we're coming from different places. Do we all hold that in common? We agree that in order to, to go to heaven, you at least got to be dead. I think most people agree with that. But beyond that, at least as I've discussed uh, this, this question with many people for many years, there seems to be little certainty uh, and a lot of confusion about this question, really the most important question, which is this. How can I know that I have right relationship with God? How can I be accepted, know that I have his favor? Which is really what that question means. How can I know that I'm going to heaven? Right? How can I know that I have right relationship with God? I'm in his favor. When I was 22 years old, I took a trip to Macedonia. Spent a few months there in southern Europe. Uh, a, a country full of ancient churches and monasteries. Beautiful buildings. I visited a few of them. I remember in one church, they had the, 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 the bones of St. John the Baptist's left hand. One of only three left hands of St. John the Baptist in all of Europe. <laughs> it was in, an incredible sight. Um, anyway, but people would travel from a great distance to come to this place to see the bones, which were displayed under a glass case, so that they could um, have a prayer there, maybe light a candle to God there, maybe give a little donation to God there in hopes that in that act, they might gain for themselves some credit from God. There might be some merit in that that would commend them to God. And so many of the churches there were filled with these relics and people would make pilgrimages hoping to gain God's favor through that, uh, which, which really is reminiscent to uh, the, the day of Martin Luther's uh, life. 500 years ago, November 1510, Luther, a Catholic priest at the time, traveled to Rome, the holy city, along with many, many other people that made the pilgrimage there. Why? They were trying to gain God's favor through going there, through visiting relics. They, the church taught that uh, the priests who had died, uh, they were so good that not only were they good enough to get into heaven, but they had extra goodness that, that they might give to you if you would go and, and look at the bones of their right hands and, and say a prayer or something. And so Martin Luther went to the Vatican. There he saw a twig from the burning bush and he prayed and he, and he found one of the coins that Judas had uh, been paid to betray Jesus. He went to the Scala Sancta, which were the steps, I believe they're still there in Rome, the Scala Sancta, which supposedly were the sacred steps on Pontius Pilate's palace. The church taught that if you would go on your knees and pray the Lord's Prayer on each step, you would gain for yourself merit uh, with God. 
And this is what he did with many others. He would, uh, on his knees in each step, he would recite the Lord's Prayer until he got to the top. And when he got to the top, Martin Luther looked down over the mass of people doing the same thing. And he famously said, who's to know if it is so? Which is another way of saying, I hope so. Boy, I hope so. But I don't really know so. Now, in time, Martin Luther would come to say, I know so. I know that I have right relationship with God because he studied God's word and he came across verses that we have, um, for instance, in 1 John chapter five where John, a disciple of Jesus, wrote and said, I've written all of this to you who believe in the name of God's son that you might know that you have eternal life. So as he studied the Bible, he discovered, Martin Luther, the, the heart of true Christianity, which in the, in the days of the Reformation became um, summarized using five solas. And if you weren't here last week, we began a series going through the five solas, the five ideas from the Reformation that changed the world then, changing the world and changing lives now. It was summarized in this way. God's salvation, which is to say right relationship with God is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, to God's glory alone. That summarized what they dis- the truth they discovered um, in the scriptures, the heart of true Christianity. And so last week we looked at that first sola, that we are made right with God by his grace alone, not by anything that we have done. In fact, you might remember Paul said in Ephesians chapter two, you, all of us, we were dead in our sins, deserving of God's righteous judgment on our sin, but God chose to make us alive because he loved us and he is rich in mercy, right? God made the dead alive through his mercy in Jesus Christ. We are saved by God's grace alone. So that's what we talked about last week, but I finished the message by adding the caveat that not all the world then is just automatically reconciled to God through Jesus whether they know it or not. No, because you have in 2 Corinthians chapter five, you have Paul coming and saying in in, um, verse 20, I implore you, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. It's an interesting command. You might expect him to say, because it is a command, you might expect him to say, reconcile yourselves to God. But, but But it's, it's a command in the passive. It's not something that you do. It's something that you have to let happen to you. It, so it's a little unusual. Be reconciled to God. That would be like saying to my daughter, be loved by your dad. Like you might expect me to say, love your father, but be loved? And this is what he says. I implore you, be reconciled to God. Right? How do we receive God's saving, reconciling grace into our life, right? How do we be reconciled? Well, Paul gives us the answer over and over again. It's almost all he can talk about. And he says it in Ephesians chapter two, verse eight, when he says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith in Jesus Christ, not by your works, 
through faith, not by your works. Now keep in mind, this is Paul saying this. Paul, before he became a Christian, he was a religious leader. He was a Pharisee. He was the best of the best. He kept the law perfectly. If anyone had a body of good works to commend himself to God, it was Paul. And yet here you have Paul saying, we are saved by God's grace, not by our works, but by faith alone. Now this challenged the commonly accepted wisdom of his day and it challenges the commonly accepted wisdom of our day. I mean you see this in the Gospel of John chapter six where Jesus, he's attracted this big crowd of people uh, through his miracles and through his teaching and the crowds come to him. We find uh, after he has fed the 5,000 Chapter six, verse 27, Jesus tells the crowd, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. There it is. God has placed his seal of approval. His favor is on this one who does this. And so they wanna know, well, what is the this? What is the this? That's what we've been searching for. High and long for. And this is what the question they ask next then. They asked him, what must we do to do the works that God requires? See the assumption in the question? You see the assumption? What must I do to do the works that God requires? They're assuming it's something that they can do. They're assuming that it's their good. They don't ask first now, is it by my works? Is it what I do? No, they just assume that. What do I gotta do? to get that approval. No different from Luther's day, right? I mean, maybe the particulars were different. Maybe the works were a little bit different. And in, in Luther's day, it was being baptized and, 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 and going and saying a prayer here and going to confession and, and taking the Eucharist, you know, taking communion and all of these acts gained for you God's grace. So different versions of, of really the same the same principle uh, that, that, that most people, I think, even hold today. Uh, I remember a few years ago when I worked at an office in Winnipeg having this conversation with a coworker, and the question was, how do I go to heaven? How am I right with God? And as we're having this conversation, uh, the, the boss's son walks into the office and he was a good Sunday school boy growing up in Sunday school. He was a young adult now and, and my coworker asked him, hey Justin, what do you think? How does someone get to heaven? Kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, uh, obey the Ten Commandments? In other words, do good. Do good, you know, like don't kill people, um, don't cheat on your wife, don't steal, don't lie, that sort of thing. Do good. All of these are various versions of, of that same answer, do good. Now the vast majority of people in the world, I think, hold to this untested assumption that if there is a good God who has a good place, it is reserved for good people. Almost everybody in the world is operating on this assumption, and I call it an assumption because I think most people, if they're honest, haven't even tested it. There's a good God who has a good place reserved for good people. And at, at a glance, that theory, the good people go theory, it kind of makes sense. It seems fair on 
one hand, and yet as we unpack it, I think you'll see that there are some real major problems with that, okay? Three problems in particular. The first problem with the good people go theory is that we lack a clear, consistent, complete standard or definition as to what is good. I mean, if, if, if you go to heaven by being good, you think that God would have made it abundantly clear exactly what good was. So you would know what it is you had to do. I mean, consider going into a class and, and the first day of the class, the teacher says, okay, your whole grade is gonna depend on your final exam at the end of the semester. Go and study, get ready. We'll meet next at the exam. You might say, hold on here, like, is there a, is, is, what's the exam on? Is there, is there a reading list, is there a syllabus? Like, what is it that I'm supposed to, what is the exam on? And the teacher would say, just be ready. Just study. Right? You'd say, well, I don't know if that is fair or if that's good. Now, now, now some Christians might say, well, what about the Ten Commandments? What about the Ten Commandments? Isn't that God's clear, complete definition as to what is good? Well, the Bible never says so. God never promises that if you do these things, you will be right with God, that you will go to heaven. There is never that promise there. In fact, this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. He says this, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. No one will be approved by God because of good deeds. Romans 3.20. Now, you might say, maybe God, has, maybe God has given us a standard. Maybe he's wired us as human beings with a standard. Isn't our conscience a standard that God has given to us? Maybe that's what he will measure us by. But the problem with that is that no two consciences are alike. Husbands and wives, you know this, right? No two consciences are alike, right? Uh, I mean, there are people on the other side of the world right now that think it's a good thing that women cover their whole body and do not show their face. That's, that's what their conscience says. Now, you may not share that, but who's to say? All over this world, and you see even in the news in our own country, in our society, the, the polarization of our society with different groups of people that have competing convictions as to what is good, but nobody can seem to agree. I read about uh, a tribe in New Guinea, which is an island down in the South Pacific, and missionaries came to this tribe, and they discovered that in this tribe it was a virtue, it was considered a vir virtue to be able to gain somebody's trust for the purpose of betraying them later. Okay, that was a virtue. And so when the missionaries came and told the story of the gospel, they came to the point where Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and they all stood up and clapped because they thought Judas was the hero of the story, right? Hey, Judas. No, hold on, guys, just wait, just wait, right? Why? Because they didn't know what good, or they had one version of good, but it was different from somebody else's version of good. And not only do different people have different consciences, different standards, but even within yourself, your conscience changes. You, you probably think a little differently than you did when you were 20, don't you? I hope so, right? 
I mean, but, but maybe, maybe when you were 20, boy, to, to have that glass of wine, that's not good, that's wrong. But now, you know, you're, 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 you're 50 and you have a glass of wine with your meal and that's good. It's not wrong. Or maybe when you're 20, it, it, it was good to, to move in with, with your partner before marriage, that was good, and now you're 50 and you look back and, and you would say, now I would say that wasn't good, that wasn't right. So even our own conscience changes and evolves over time. So which standard, if good people go, which standard does God use? That's a problem. There is no clear definition as to what is good. But there's a second problem. Let's assume that you do know the definition of good, of right and wrong. That's clear. The, the, the next question is how good is good enough? If good people go, how good is good enough? Is it 80%? Is it, is it 51%? What percentage of your deeds need to be put on the positive side of the balance sheet to secure heaven, to secure God's favor? What is it? Because I think all of us, is there anyone here who, who, who's, who's perfect? One person, two people? Anyone else? Okay, just two. Um, so no one's batting a thousand, okay? So if, we're, if, if, if no one's batting a thousand, then what is it? How good is good? Now, let, let's suppose, suppose that when Jesus was hanging on a cross, there was a man that was hanging beside him who was there because he was a bad guy. He was a thief. And let's suppose that he knew that he was getting what he deserved. And he said, I am getting what I deserve, this thief would say to Jesus. And let's suppose that if there was this thief, he said to Jesus, you have not deserved what you're getting, this death. And let's suppose he looked to Jesus and he said, Remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. Let's suppose what Jesus would say. In that situation, if that happened, maybe he would say, it's a little late for you, bucko. (laughs) Now, after all those years of crime, of thievery, now, you think you can just get turned to God? You know, so... Even if there is a, 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 a standard, a bar, it's like, what happens if you, if you live enough bad that you just never have enough time to make up for the, to accumulate enough good to tip the balance into your favor? And what would happen even if you did know the standard and you fell one work short? I have a friend here, a couple weeks ago, he was going taking a really big exam because the job he wanted, great job, he had to get 80% on this exam to get the job. And so I knew that he was going for this test and so after that day came, I I, um, asked him how it went and he was just, he was sad. He he said, 79.9% Rusty. And they don't round up. That was the difference between getting the job and the job. 79.9%. You know? Now can you, if it was, as it, that seems hard, almost maybe even unfair with something like a job. How much more eternity, relationship with God resting on one deed to tip you this way or that way on a standard that has never been clearly fully defined and given to you? 
All of this assumed by people who hold the good people go theory. But there's a third problem, and the third problem is that Jesus never thought or taught that good people go. If you go back to John chapter six, when he talks about getting God's seal of approval, and the crowd excitedly pulls out their notepad and their pens, and they say, tell us, what are the works that God requires? Jesus responds. Verse 29, Jesus answered, the work of God is this, and I can just imagine the hush that was over the crowd, the anticipation. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent, in talking about himself, to believe in the one he has sent, and I can imagine them jotting that down, like, oh, slow down, slow down, to believe, okay, to Jesus had no more to say. To believe in the one he had sent, and this is what he says over and over again. To the crowds, to individuals in private, like in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but receive eternal life. Right? We receive by believing, Jesus says over and over again. Now, so I think some people can misunderstand what it means to believe when Jesus says you must believe. Is he talking about just giving, saying that I, I acknowledge that this thing is true? Like, I believe there's a place called India. Never been there. Probably will never go there. And the reality that there's a place called India has no bearing on how I think or how I live today. I believe, I believe in India. I believe in that chair. There's a chair there. I see it and I believe it. Is that what he means? Just to give mental assent to something? That's not at all what he's talking about. He's saying this. I believe in this chair. I'm believing in this chair. I'm putting my weight. I'm putting my trust. I'm putting my hope in this chair. He's talking about putting your trust and your hope in something. Now, Paul uses the word faith. Now, believe and faith, they're used interchangeably, mean the exact same thing. So Paul says again and again, it's almost all he can say. You see this in Romans chapter 3. Verse 22. This righteousness of God is given through faith in Jesus Christ, to all who believe. Then a few verses later, for, in verse 28, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Justify, that means to make right. You justify yourself when you do something, you justify, you're trying to make it right. We are justified by God. We are made right with him through faith apart from any good deeds. Paul says, as Jesus said, it's nothing that you do, it's something that you receive, can only receive by believing in Jesus and what he has done for you. So I want to take a, a few minutes to kind of unpack, because faith, that's just a big, it's a big word, what does that mean? 
Justification by faith has two elements I want to suggest. There's a subtraction and there's an addition. There's a letting go and then there's a receiving. And, and to kind of explain this, I want to use an analogy of, of quarry days because I had my first quarry day experience a couple months ago. Uh, way better than... Um, So I, I, took, I took my daughters to uh, Quarry Days, and, and Pippa, who's five years old, I thought she'd be all into the rides, but she wasn't too interested in the rides. She wanted to play the games. Why? Because she wanted that big pink stuffy, right? She wanted that. And so there was this game um, where you probably saw it where they have the bottles, like little Coke bottles lined up in a row at a distance, and you pay five bucks, and maybe they give you five balls, and you have to knock down the bottles with the balls, and if you knock down, uh, you know, five bottles with those five baseballs, then you win the big stuffy. Now, she wanted to win that. And of course, I knew that there was no way. I knew, that, I knew there was no way she couldn't. She, A, she wouldn't have had the accuracy to knock down the bottles. B, she wouldn't have even had the arm strength to get the ball that far. So I didn't let her do it. Now, I did see some fathers there walking around with a big scowl on their face, and their kid happily carrying, like, the big stuffy, and and I thought, I thought that poor guy, he spent a week's worth of his income to get that thing. What a sucker. I'm a better father. I'm not going to do that. Um, so, you know, we didn't. But let's just suppose, let's suppose that, let's suppose that she played, okay? And so she, she, she gets the, she gets the balls. She's holding these balls. And she's throwing these balls at these bottles. And it's not even close. I mean, it's not going to happen. But she's got all these balls to get that stuffy. And, and in love for her, I go, that isn't going to happen. And so I go and I, I pay down my, my money and I, I get some baseballs of my own. And I throw and I knock down five bottles with those five balls. Because I totally would. I totally would. There's no way I'd miss. And I did it. And the guy hands me the big pink stuffy. Now, in order for, I did it for her so she could have it. Now, if I, for her to receive that, what does she need to do? Well, she needs to do two things, right? She needs to first let something go, and then she needs to receive something. The very first thing she needs to do is she needs to Her, her hands, now, now maybe you kind of know where I'm going with this analogy. Those baseballs, what are they? There are they're, they're works to try to gain God's favor, right? That's the grounds of our justification. I'm putting my hope in this. The first thing you've got to do is you gotta, you've got to let that go and empty your hands of your own works as the, as the grounds of your justification with God. Now, the Bible calls that repentance, repentance. We normally think of repentance as saying sorry to God for the bad things we do. That's part of it. But you know what? That, that's probably the smallest part of it. Repentance is saying to God, I'm sorry for all the good things I have tried to do to win your favor. I'm sorry that I'm trying to find my hope and my trust in all of my works. 
I repent of that. I drop them. That's repentance. To not trust in my own works for my rightness with God. So we got to let that go first. That's what the Bible calls repentance. And then the second element of justification by faith then is with those hands then, just having open hands to receive the gift of relationship with God, the gift of eternal life, the gift of God's approval and his favor, right? Now, now do I get it because I have open hands? Yes and no. I, I mean, had Jesus not gone, gone and, 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 and did it himself, I could stand there with hands open all day and nothing's getting in those hands, right? It's not the fact that I have open hands that, 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 that gains me that. It's the fact that Jesus has gained it on my behalf. He died on the cross for my sin in my place so that the, 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 his life and, and the righteousness that belonged to him would be given to those who would receive it by faith. Are babies coming? Oh, Okay. Because uh, I know everyone's wondering. Yeah. Okay, all right. I get it. At that point, baby's big, bladder's small. I get it, right? Right? right. So, right? Jeez, it's something that salvation is something that Jesus gives us that we receive through faith just by having empty hands to receive that. What belongs to Jesus gets credited to those who trust in that, which is why G- uh, uh, John says in John 1.12, to all who receive Jesus, to those who believed in his name. How do you receive Jesus? To believe in his name. To them, God gave the right to become children. Not children born of natural descent or a husband's will, but children born of God. It's not um, our works, John says, Jesus says, Paul says that saves us. It's receiving the righteousness of Jesus through putting our trust in what he has done on our behalf. That's faith. Letting go of our trust in ours, trusting in Jesus. The Bible calls that confessing Jesus as your Lord and Savior, putting your trust in what Jesus has done for you. And the promise of God is that if you do that, if you drop your works as the grounds of your relationship with God, and if you trust in what Jesus has done on your behalf, the promise of God is you will be saved. He gives you the gift of eternal life and his favor and approval. Isn't that amazing? Well, some of you pick, that's good. Yeah. It's not good people who go to heaven. It's forgiven people. It's forgiven people. So now as we bring this to a close, I just want to address two groups of people here because there are only two groups of people. There's the people who have dropped their works and have trusted in Jesus' work on their behalf and then there are those that are still holding on to their works. There's only two groups. To those who have already put their faith in Jesus, maybe the natural question is, and it's the question I got last week after talking about salvation by God's grace alone, so then we can just live any way we want. It doesn't matter how we live. Right? To which Paul said, should we sin that grace abounds? Be it never so. Right? We have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter two. He says it does matter 
how you live. God does want you to do good, but you don't earn his favor by doing good. You are saved by grace through faith, not by your works, but he doesn't end there. He goes on to say in verse 10, now we are God's work. We are God's work. He has given us life. We have been created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We haven't been saved by our works, but God has saved us for our works. And that makes all the difference. The motivation makes all the difference. If all of your efforts are to try to avoid God's punishment and get his favor, then, then that's, that's a tedious, burdensome task. But if... God has already freely given you his favor just by believing in it, receiving it. Then those works are a response. The goodness of our lives and our deeds are but a a response of love and gratitude towards the favor and the acceptance we've we've already received through Jesus. That motivation makes all the difference. But to the second group of people, I wonder if there's some of you here this morning that if I would have asked you when you walked in here this morning, um, if you were right with God, if you thought you would go to heaven, if you died today, I wonder if some of you might have said, boy, I hope so. I hope so. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm doing my best. I'm trying hard. Maybe you walked in here this morning with an armful of baseballs. Maybe you're one of those people that kind of held to the good people go theory. And now you see that your I hope so can become an I know so. Because you know what? There was a man that hung on a cross beside Jesus. That was a true story. There was a man there and he was a thief and he was dying because of his own bad deeds. And he did say to Jesus, I deserve what I'm getting, but you don't deserve this. And he did say to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you enter your kingdom. But Jesus didn't say to him, sorry, bucko, a little late for you. Jesus looked at the man hanging there, and he said to him, very truly I tell you, which is a way of Jesus saying, I promise you this. Very truly, I tell you, this day, you will be with me in paradise. I promise you that yes, yes, I will give you life. I will give you God's approval. I will give you his favor. And that's, that's the promise of God. If you let go of your efforts and just receive what Jesus has done through faith in him. The promise of God is I will give you life. You will receive my favor. If that's you this morning, if you're that person that came in, maybe if you were to be honest, it was the good people go thing and you're trying hard and you had that arm full of baseballs. If, if that was you and you've heard all of this, what would stop you from dropping them now? Because this is not a process. This is a decision. It's a decision to drop. Receive. What would stop you from doing that today? To turn away from trusting in your own efforts and to trust in what Jesus has done for you. 
What would stop you from doing that today? Today, right now, you can, uh, if that's you here this morning, I want you to know that you can repent of, of all of your efforts. You can drop those baseballs and you can open your hands to receive God into your life as your Lord and Savior just by asking, by praying a prayer that looks like this. I mean, it's not a prayer that saves you. It's placing your faith in Jesus and his work for you as your Savior that saves you. But a prayer like this is a way of expressing to God that you're no longer hanging on to your works and you're trusting in his. It goes like this. Heavenly Father, thank you for not being fair. Thank you instead for being merciful. I believe true fairness would have separated me from you forever because that's what I deserve. I believe that Jesus did all the work in my place to receive your favor. I repent of putting my faith in myself and I let that go, and now I put my faith in Jesus as my Savior. Thank you for sending him to die in my place. I want, I want you to close your eyes right now, all of you. Just bow your head. And I want you to pray, and for those of you who have already put your faith in Jesus and said that sort of prayer, I mean, just, just pray and thank God Thank God that he's done it all for you. Thank God that you can say, I know so, instead of, I hope so. But if you're that person here this morning that came in with your efforts saying, I hope so, I'm trying hard, I invite you to let go and let God give you what he wants to give you. And if you want to do that, you can just pray this prayer right now in just the quietness of your heart there. I'll give you a minute. Whatever you got to do, whatever you got to say to God, I'll give you all a minute to do that. Keep your eyes closed. If, if you just prayed that prayer or prayer like that right now, if you just kind of let go of your works and, uh, and you've told God that you're putting your trust in his, while everyone's eyes are closed, except for mine up here, I'm going to see you. I think it's important that if you did that, that you declare that right now, that you made that decision. If that's a decision that you've made in a prayer you've prayed, um, just have the courage to raise your hand to declare that. Thank you. If you uh, keep your eyes closed there, I'll, I'll pray. But if that's a prayer that you prayed, whether you had the courage to put up your hand or not, I, I just encourage you to tell, tell a friend, um, tell a family member, someone here, that, that, you've, uh, that you've prayed that prayer. The promise of God is that when we, uh, in faith, ask for his life, he gives it to us. Lord Jesus, we, we are in awe of you. We do owe you everything. And the amazing thing is we don't have to pay you back. It wasn't a loan. 
We're not on a payment plan. Lord, you won for us God's favor. You won for us eternal life. And you offer it to us. Or we, we know that we can't hold our works and your works at the same time. We've got to trust in one or the other. So Father, I, I just pray for anyone here who needs just to let go of, of, of their works as the grounds for their, for their future, for their security, Father. And, and um, just pray that uh, each and every one of us would, would have open hands to receive, Father, that life that you freely give us through your son, Jesus. We thank you that you have not been fair with us you have been far better than fair. You have been merciful and you love us. And I just pray, Father, that as we live by that faith and as we have that certainty and assurance that comes with being able to say, I know so, I know so, because I'm not trusting that I've been good enough. I know that Jesus has been good enough on my behalf and I'm putting my trust in him. Lord, I just pray that we could go here just full of that confidence full of that peace that we could go back to our homes and our workplaces and our schools, Father, and just be able to live now good lives out of the overflow of love and gratitude for you because you've done it all, because we are in your favor. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.